Why, hello and a howdy, we're so very glad to see you Cause we're getting kinda rowdy and we've got a lot to say And we're gonna try and do our very best to entertain you And we hope you'll be delighted by the time you go away That's pretty exciting, right Omega? Indeed! Yeah, right. HIAC Talk Radio is always exciting. You will deal with that Atlas harshly. I think he broke it. And you're listening to Hell in a Cell Radio. The Hell in a Cell Talk Radio. Hell in a Cell Radio. Hell in a Cell Talk Radio. Hell in a Cell Talk Radio. Good evening, morning, or afternoon, gentlemen and ladies, depending on when you're getting this particular feed. We are here. It's a special limited edition wrestling historian for you, the wrestling fans who actually enjoy professional wrestling. You know the thing that happened a long time ago, back when there was territories and wrestling in all 50 states. I'm joined here in the Wayback Machine. We're in a two-seater here with the great Dan Calachico. Uh Similar backgrounds, um, both literally and emotionally similar backgrounds. But that's the podcast for another time because we are here to talk about wrestling. And the last two weeks in wrestling history are uh, very notable things happened. A uh, couple of them are notable for a guy that's in wrestling uh, that's trending right now in uh, social media and maybe for all the wrong reasons, but uh, for the time that he was known for professional wrestling, uh, these last two weeks were very big in professional wrestling, uh, both personally and professionally, for one of the people we are going to talk about. Uh, gentlemen and ladies, uh, this part of wrestling, this is Wrestling Historian, uh, where we go back in time to talk about uh professional wrestling when it was professional wrestling before it was sports entertainment before uh people weren't allowed were allowed to say the word belt and the word wrestler so this gentlemen and ladies is a wrestling historian special edition um just for you so we're going to go back to a uh a great day in in wrestling great day for me personally uh because i got to witness history uh, September 10th, 1988, as we have a uh, appearance fee that needs to be recognized here. It looks uh, even better with the with the with the, with the background, the virtual background. That all of a sudden, oh, from the void of the gray, yeah, yeah, came yeah. the lovely Amber. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, hello. We got. Wait, wait, wait. We got. Hold her up again. Wait, 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 wait. We gotta go to that one. There you go. Hello, Amber. Amber alert. That cost. I cannot afford that. I can barely afford her as it is, and she did not clear this with her lawyers at, at all before we were going on the air. So this is a um, could be a legal issue, but um. September 10th, as I was saying, 1988, very important day for wrestling history, uh, professionally and personally, because it was right here, Philadelphia, in the non-air-conditioned Philadelphia Convention Center, the old oh. Philadelphia Convention Center, oh. University City, across the street from what is now known as Children's Hospital, Pennsylvania, CHOP. You got to see the United States Tag Team Champions. 
Sweet Stan and beautiful Bobby Eaton with manager Jim Cornette go up against the NWA World Tag Team Champions, Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson. And uh, the winner of that bout, um, depending on who won, would be the double champions. Well, uh, that was the main event that night. Uh, two heel teams going up against each other. So big, in fact, that introduced before the match started, in the sitting at the press table, was current Philadelphia 76er, NBA All-Star, and future MVP, Charles Barkley. Was at ringside, introduced before the crowd, and held up four, four, four fingers to the crowd, showing he was a, indeed a Horseman fan. Uh, Midnight Express made their way to my favorite entrance music of all time, Chase, by from the Midnight Express soundtrack. Jim Cornette whirling his racket, getting the crowd hooped up. Horseman came out, and before the match started, Arn Anderson slid under the ring, ran over, and shook Charles Barker's hand and went back up into the ring. Well, the bout went off great with all four men that knew each other so well. They'd only been they'd been wrestling together for about only six weeks, the feud had started. It was only six weeks. But on that particular night, September 10th, 1988, history was made when, even though Arn Anderson had uh, pinned Stan Lane, Bobby Eaton had pinned Tully Blanchard. Referee counted both men's shoulders down. But it was the Midnight Express who had their hands raised in victory and became the first tag team ever to be both the United States Tag Team Champions and the NWA World Tag Team Champions. Shocked the world. Shocked all of us live there. Couldn't believe what we just saw. Little did we know what, was, what had gone on behind the scenes. And little did we all didn't know what would go on for at least another five to ten years. Uh, that that would be the last match for Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson in the NWA. They had already signed with the WWF and would debut as the Brain Busters uh, inside of a month. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yes. uh, we're booing the move. We're not booing Tully and Arn. No, 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 no. Just we're we're booing the fact that they had to they had to leave, and especially not booing the fact that they were under the tutelage of Bobby Heenan. Um, no, no, but. Uh, Again, knowing what we know now, that uh, we had no idea that that would be the last uh, bout, the last uh, time we would see Tully and Arn uh, in the NWA. And that would turn out to be the last time Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson would ever be a tag team in the NWA or WCW ever again. Uh they obviously went to the WWF, become the Brain Busters, would hold the tag team championship, becoming the first team ever to be uh, WWF tag team champions as well as NWA tag team champions. They were the first team to do that. It was not the Road Warriors. It was Tully and Arn. Um, and then when their time in the WWF had ended and Tully failed a drug test in the WWF, but uh, due to Jim Hurd, uh, because Tully failed the drug test in another federation, he was not permitted to come back to the WCW. That's where the, the real boo comes in. <laughs> but uh, September 10th, 1988, right here 
Philadelphia, Pennsylvania got to see the two greatest tag teams in the world at the time do battle with the Midnight Express, Stan Lane, and now the late great Bobby Eaton coming out on top. Yeah, I was, I was, I was gonna, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I, um, I had just watched that. Uh, mm-hmm. After he passed, I put in the, uh, the, um, that unreleased, basically it's a collection of the home videos, unreleased stuff mm-hmm. uh, from Cornette's collection that he released years ago. Yeah. With all that. And that match is on there and mm-hmm. you don't realize it unless you're reading the liner note. Cause it, it comes with a little booklet in there. And yeah. unless you're reading the little booklet, you're not aware of what you're actually watching until you're like, Oh, that's the match that somebody yeah. had. They he had it right. record like that. Saying just for a second, that's a monumental because it's like you said, Arn Anderson. Uh, uh, it's um, Tully's last appearance in NWA WCW until Starcade '94. Ironically, yes. in Philadelphia, right. you yeah. and I were both there. Yeah. Um, well, I was. I think you were there. <laughs> I was there. Um, and once again, in the unconditioned stink pit that was the Civic Center. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could. I still smell that building when you talk about it. I can smell. Mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just this iconic thing because you. First of all, you had a few that had just started. Like you touched upon it. Like mm-hmm. that's less than a year, barely less than a year. And it's like, well, they're leaving. Yeah, that's a whole cluster F. The reason that Arn and Tully are leaving. And that mm-hmm. caused real tension within the group and back, you know, backstage on TV, on TV or otherwise. Yeah. Um, and then again, because of the drug test and Jim Hurd's a fucking idiot. Um, you never see him in the company. It's just what a money. And it's on tape. And, and yeah. you know, it's crazy to me that existed. And like I said, I was watching it without looking at the book, but at, like halfway through the match, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, but uh, September 10th, 1988, uh, a landmark date in professional wrestling history that I very, very fortunate to have seen witness live and uh, absolutely unbelievable. Um, September 11th um, was the uh, happy belated 56th birthday to another man who is known as one of the greatest managers of all time. And someone that um, my co-host greatly resembles. Happy belated 56th birthday to Paul Heyman. I don't know whether I should be grateful or insulted. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it as gratefully. And for, before we went on the air, Dan sh- showed me his ponytail and I made a Paul Lee reference. And that's the only reason that he resembles. There you go. What do you mean? What are you talking about? I don't know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, radio fans. But uh, happy belated birthday to, uh, to uh, one of the greats, uh, who, greatest who ever do it. You know, when we talk about great promos, I have to have two lists. You know, top promo, best promos and wrestlers and best promos and managers because you can't put them to, at the same time. You give me, you tell me who's the best talker of all time. I have to split it up between wrestlers and managers because they're two different skill sets. Uh, but Paulie's always in my top five, top two or three um, with uh, great talkers. And he's still to this day, which is amazing uh, that he can still get heat from a crowd, still make me laugh. Still, even the backstage oh, segments are are hilarious. His facial expressions are 
hysterical. You know, he's caught in between the uh, the Brock Lesnar Roman Reigns thing, and he's got his finger in so many pies. I mean, being the manager of of uh, Roman Reigns, he's got him now. You got the Brock Lesnar thing. You got the Finn Balor thing. You got the even with the uh, um, Big E and uh, the New Day with the Usos thing. Uh, he's and there is Paul Lee right behind his tribal chief, being the subservient guy, but knowing that this was all his baby. Uh, Paul Lee's also one of the great bookers, obviously the mastermind behind uh, ECW. Uh, if you want to play the what if game, uh, what if Eddie Gilbert hadn't untimely left us prematurely, would the ECW still be the ECW? Because it was uh, Eddie who was booking uh, ECW at the time. Uh, and it was Paulie that brought Eddie in. Might have last longer. Yeah. Um, but who knows where if, if ECW would have been ECW had uh, it not been taken over by Paulie and taken in a complete different direction and the amount of careers that Paul Lee helped launch and the influence that he had because pretty much everything that the Attitude Era did uh, Paul Lee did first uh, drinking beers uh, canes, tables ladders, chairs it was all done in a very small uh, bingo hall at the corner of Swanson and Rittner um, at least five years before the uh, Attitude Era started but that was all thanks to the psycho yuppie scarsdale long island's <laughs> own paul Heyman. happy belated birthday to paul we also have to give him a little bit of credit to creating one of the greatest stables in wcw history that was i don't think they even lasted a year which is the none of the which is not as no. their it's not none of their faults no it's just the way it, booking happened dangerous alliance put together the greatest hall of fame talent in wrestling history. And I'll put that above uh, the Horsemen, DX, Cough, NWO, or anything like that. When you put together a stable with Rick Rude, uh, Arn Anderson, Larry Zabisco, the great Bobby, great Bobby Eaton, and a incredibly young, green, and amazingly talented Steve Austin, that's the yes. best stable. Yeah, and Medusa. Uh, and you got Paulie talking for, I mean, seriously, how do you get I, better than it? You don't, I just saw that, uh, it, like it was the anniversary or something uh -huh. of the squadron versus Sting squadron versus the dangerous Alliance, Alliance. war yeah. games. And I started hearing people referring to it as one of the greatest war games that ever war was. Games. I was like, really? I didn't know people held it. Cause I love it for selfish reasons. Cause I'm like, yeah. Look at the, t I love everybody in this match, but, <laughs> but I was like, like I saw it more than once on social media. I was like, Oh shit. Yeah. All right. But I know that there's never been a collection of talent like that on one side uh, by one guy. So, uh, you know, when we talk about great stables and great uh, factions, you know, all the names go by, but the ones that don't get the most, uh, love or get the most respect or, or the, the ultimate what ifs I just put the dangerous alliance in the varsity club at the top of my list of great um, teams that never got the run they deserved or never got the attention and I'm, I'm now going to add the hurt business to that too because yeah. that's another uh, 
star-making vehicle that got the wheels cut off before it could even start rolling. But um, yeah, but Paulie and the Dangerous Alliance, again, Hall of Fame talent from top to bottom. If when Steve Austin is is your 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 weak not I'm not gonna say weak link, but when Steve Austin is the greatest yeah. guy in that pasture, I mean, with a, a stable that includes Rick Rude, Bobby Eaton, and Arn Anderson, and Larry Zabisco, like him or not. But Steve, Larry Steve was Austin great. Is, I don't understand. I don't understand the hate Larry gets at all. Larry and I'm I don't it's the the hate Larry gets from everyone else because he's not he wasn't the greatest guy to get along with in the ring. Well, you know. Yeah. But uh I mean, as far as, as far as goes, I as far as I know he didn't sexually assault or abuse anybody. He was just a dick kind of. Yeah. And that kind of thing and re- and wow, a, a guy with a re- a guy was a dick and re- when he when he was a wrestler. Who knew? Yes, I didn't think that happened. Hmm. But um yeah, but uh, but Arn Zabisco, Rick Rude, Bobby Eaton, and Steve Austin's the the low man on that totem pole. Wow. Amazing, amazing talented. But thank you to to Paulie. Um, and we're gonna September thirteenth, nineteen ninety eight. Um, we were talking about this was during the the Attitude Era, but uh, I want to give a, a attention to September thirteenth. Uh, 1998, during a live edition of Nitro in Greenville, South Carolina, one of the most genuinely emotional promos I've ever seen, and still to this day, uh, that's why I have to recognize it in this date in wrestling history, just because of the significance of it and how it made me feel personally as a wrestling fan and how it, it was for wrestling. On uh, this live edition of Nitro in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, uh, James J. Dillon, who was already in the front office at WCW at the time, introduced uh, Arn Anderson, who has since, had, since retired, and Arn introduced the current four horsemen, uh, Steve McMichael. Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, leave him alone. <laughs> Dean Malenko, uh, Chris Benoit, and they all came to the ring. Um, to Thunder Salvation wearing tuxedos and um, finally Arn took the and introduced each man and said oh yeah and Ric Flair and theme from 2001 hits place goes nuts obviously I go nuts watching this at home um, it was kind of like a, a CM Punk moment other than we really didn't know if he was there or not we hoped uh, but when Flair came out uh, absolutely amazing ovation. Flair visibly moved, and he's some guy, and he's a, he's a opposite of what we've been talking about, about wrestlers being dicks. Rick Flair always held his emotions on his sleeve. He always knew he was a guy who was very easily moved. Um, for a guy that can sell as, as much as he as much as he did, when he was physically, when he was emotionally moved, you could see it, you know, didn't try to hide back the tears when he walked to the ring and the ovation he got. And he just gave such a heartfelt promo. This is Flair's first appearance back in the WCW since leaving um, uh, the WWF and just, just being, you know, retired, but him coming back uh, on that day uh, for that crowd in the heart of the mid Atlantic area where he first became a superstar. And um, 
we'll talk about that later uh, in this edition of Wrestling Historian. But uh, to have it there in Greenville, South Carolina, very special for him and for his family. Uh, they were all there. Um, Charlotte, who we now know is um, Ashley, um, Reed and David were all there and uh, very emotional. And he had gave a, an incredibly emotional promo, uh, which turned um, <laughs> very uh, gra uh, graphic and profanity laced, <laughs> thanks to uh, the uh, appearance of Eric Bischoff. And that's what made it even better. You're a liar. You're a cheat. You're a scam. You are a no good son of a bitch. Fire me. I'm already fired. Abuse of power. Cut me off. You can me. Listen, with the, the in light of the recent horrible <laughs> accusations and horrible um, realizations that have come to light on wrestling yeah. historian. We talk about historical moments in wrestling. Yeah. Thus covering this on another episode. Uh, when we return, which I think uh, will be in the first week in October, because after this, after you're already listening to this, Dan myself is moving to new shindig. To new shindigs, to new digs. The shindig will be in the <laughs> new dig. That's the name of his apartment complex. New yeah, they called the shindig. <laughs> um, so we will talk about the plane ride from hell in a whole new light mm -hmm. on the next episode of HIAC Talk Radio, which will be in a week and a half from now. Yeah, but on September thirteenth, nineteen ninety-eight, I still remember where I was. Mm -hmm. When that moment happened, uh, Matt says really liking the background. Hey, uh, mine or his, Matt? Uh, no, it, it, either or. It looks <laughs> okay. the same. It looks the same. <laughs> See the way because the way the edit cuts, the camera goes back and forth. It just looks like we're in, it just looks like we're changing in front of the logo. Um, so we don't have to tell him the difference between the two. Okay. We'll talk about it, but next time it won't matter <laughs> because you'll have the same one. But yes, thank you. Uh, it's thank Craig's you, ID. When Craig came on, uh, he had it on in the background. I was like, well, that's a fantastic idea. I don't know why I just don't <laughs> do that. Boom. I did it. Anyway. Uh, uh, yeah, so we will. Uh, Ric Flair, um, like I said, at the top of uh, the historian segment now, unfortunately, is in uh, the talk of wrestling for all the wrong reasons. But back then in September 13, 1998, he was talking wrestling for the right reasons. Which brings us, what a segue, to September 17th, 1981, when once again, the talk of the wrestling world happened 40 years ago. It was exactly 40 years ago, last September 17th, a couple days ago. Kansas City, Missouri, and what I still maintain is the smallest ring in the history of professional wrestling. Uh, in a match uh, refereed by the great Lou Fez, six-time NWA champion, on that date, September 17th, 1981, in Kansas City, Missouri, Ric Flair won his very first of 17, his first World Heavyweight Championship defeating Dusty Rhodes for the NWA heavyweight title September 17th, 1981. 40 years ago, Ric Flair became a world champion for the very first time and was indeed the talk of professional wrestling. 
I had to read about it in the after magazines. I had to see the grainy photos and it just showed Rick with the belt. And I never saw a pin. I never saw anything. It was just a picture of Ric Flair holding the NWA championship. And in 1981, if anyone held that belt, that 10 pounds of gold, if it wasn't Harley Race, you know, anyone else who had it, it was a huge deal. It meant they were the best wrestler in the world. So Ric Flair beating Dusty Rhodes or Ric Flair winning the NWA championship was absolutely amazing at the time because Ric Flair had always been, had already been a main, a main event wrestler in the Mid-Atlantic area. He had held every title in the, in the, uh, the Mid-Atlantic area, multi-time United States champion, but had gone the limit with Harley Race a number of times. And I just knew he was good. I just didn't know he was that good. But proved me wrong, proved a lot of people wrong. But September 17, 1981, in the smallest wrestling ring in the history of recorded time, he defeated Dusty Rhodes. Um, the, Dusty's out was he uh, was in a feud with the assassin in Florida and who jumped off the rope many times and injured Dusty's leg. So when Dusty went to pick up Ric Flair from the top rope uh, in the suplex, the bad leg gave out from under him. Flair came out on top. The great Luthez counted three. And Ric Flair became the world NWA heavyweight champion for the very first time. Also on that date, very significant, September 17th, 1986, Dan, in a WWF TV taping in Salisbury, Maryland, of all places, uh, okay. something happened that would change the course of television uh, in terms of professional wrestling. Because what happened on that date at the TV taping in Salisbury, Maryland, uh, who knew that it would create such an incredible dynamic that has never been duplicated ever and so far going on 35 years now. No one has come close to this, but uh, it was this, at this WWF TV taping uh, that the powers that be, in this case Vince McMahon, decided to place uh, at Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan together on commentary. Oh, man, I didn't know where you're going with that, but I didn't think it was going to be that. Yep, that was the first time they were joined together and they were together. And ever since, they every TV taping that was ever done at WWF of Gorilla Monsoon, Bobby Heenan was at his side. And, you know, we've debated or we can debate better, you know, there's no team. debate. <laughs> you know, King and Jerry Lawler. And, Come on. You know, it's a, uh, see, I think in that conversation, it's a different. Mm -hmm. They're not the same commentary commentators. No. Like, yeah. it's just different eras, different styles. So, yeah, they're all great. Mm -hmm. But there was wrestling. Commentating before. Yeah. Bobby and Gorilla. <laughs> and there has been wrestling commentators after Bobby after. and Gorilla. And yeah. in my opinion, and I don't think it's far-fetched to say this, there hasn't been one that has been, and I'm not taking anything away from JR. Jim yeah. Ross is going to go down as one of the greatest color play-by-play uh, -play guys yeah. um, in history. Mm -hmm. But different time. There's, no, there's nothing. There's no commentary you could 
I go, I will go back and watch matches. I don't care about just to hear commentary from Bobby yeah. and, and gorilla. I, I don't give a, sh- I don't give a hoot in hell <laughs> what's going on in the ring, but I will, I will listen to Bobby and gorilla call a phone book. Yeah. That's how I good just, they were. Just, that's how good they were. I've- and I'll tell you this, how much of it is Bobby? How much is it of it? It's gorilla. Well, we don't really know because gorilla didn't work that much after that on commentary without Bobby. Mm-hmm. on a regular basis but gorilla was still he was commissioner you know a figurehead on tv yeah. at that point but but, but every, bobby it, elevated yeah. and again no every, disrespect to tony shivani because i have nothing not a bad thing to say about tony shivani and his commentary he had to carry wcw programming through the best and some of the worst <laughs> but right next to him yeah was bobby goddamn heenan elevating that entire program so it, exactly. bobby and gorilla there, that's the catalyst and everything else come is is a close second or worse yeah in my opinion i and again like you said dan i don't know anybody that would that could really disagree with that wholeheartedly or uh have a convincing argument against that because they were put together and they were put together permanently after that on on that date they every time they did come every time gorilla was on commentary it was with bobby period he didn't they didn't <laughs> share them like with anyone else I'm glad you said that because there's a lot of things, you know, in the recent 10 years and even the more recent five years where we look at it and go, what is Vince not seeing? Yeah. But somebody would have had to punch him or smack him in the face to look at those two and not go, we should put them together again. Yeah. That's just, you know, we got it. Yeah. And talking crazy here. (laughs) Uh, They're the. It's and it's. As such a testament to them, you can remember what was said during a Bobby Gorilla commentator and without even knowing what match they were that you remember what they were saying, but you don't remember what match they were calling just because it was those two. And <laughs> from everything from <laughs> from girls, oh, will you stop to uh, <laughs> to Bobby's, um, you know, uh, commentating about the. Uh, Oh man, who was it? He was with the Killer Bees. Um, I know which one they are. You know, like, yeah. Oh, you know which one is Brian Blair and which one's Jim Brandel? Because yeah, which one is it? It's one of the mask. Just um, absolutely amazing. You found the misinformation, brain, and the way that Grill always called him brain. You know, no one else called him that. You know, everyone else called him Bobby or Weasel, but he always called him brain. And, you know, obviously what makes them so great, not only was their chemistry on screen, but you know how much it carried off screen because kind of like how even when they were apart, they could never be without each other. You know, uh, when we unfortunately lost Gorilla, when Bobby was in WCW, he made it a point to, to mention that on the air. And when he was inducted into the WWF Hall of Fame, uh, he said the one person you you wish was here was was Gorilla. Out, out of all the people that Bobby lost, and Bobby started wrestling, you know, when he started wrestling, a lot of great deal of his peers at that point weren't weren't still weren't even around. Guys that helped break him in, guys that were influential, guys that first gave him a push, guys that he worked with that made him great. But out of all those guys, he missed Gorilla the most. You know, that was just an incredible uh, partnership, incredible tandem incredible teamwork you know not just on commentary and you you can't see 
you don't get that great without liking your your partner or having some type of you know genuine affection and and emotion because trust me with those guys they had enough pull if they didn't like working with each other it would have been over a lot quicker but oh yeah they uh yeah but they they loved each other and we loved them because i you i can't get another you know and it's almost like everyone's trying to be a heel now compared to compared to bobby and gorilla that's you know, the that's the thing everybody's trying and uh bobby and gorilla didn't have to try to do shit no <laughs> you know yeah they were just doing naturally uh gifted performer and like you said bobby elevated everyone you know that was just who he was and that was his natural gift uh god's gift of wrestling was bobby heenan uh finally on september 17th um we were saying we said happy belated birthday to a uh, great manager, uh, Paul Heyman. And I said, when I talk about great managers or great talkers, I put them in a top three. One of those guys in the top three also had a birthday. September 17th, happy belated 60th birthday to James E. Jim Cornette. Yeah. Happy birthday, Jim. <laughs> You're a uh, nice guy. <laughs> Jim Cornette, the Jim Cornette, the manager, unparalleled <laughs> success. Jim Cornette on the microphone, unparalleled uh, heat. Um, like I said, I was there when his team, my my the best tag team I've ever seen, the Midnight Express, won the NWA Tag Team Championship uh, right here. And the 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 DVD that Dan was talking about with the Jim Cornette's uh, collectibles and Jim Cornette's stuff. A lot, great deal of them took place right here in Philly. I'm lucky. I was lucky enough to to witness a lot of them, and um, to witness the heat that he got uh, just being at ringside. Uh, him getting a great trailer, Big Bubba, uh, to be his bodyguard was not uh, a work. He legitimately needed someone to watch his back at ringside because people would swing at him, connect, throw things at him, chairs at him. Uh, so he he honestly needed someone to watch his back because the amount of heat that he got from fans legitimately wanting to hurt him. You should probably get another bodyguard now. Not from yeah. me. I <laughs> wouldn't do anything like that for legal reasons. I absolutely wouldn't. But uh, watch it, Jim. There's a lot of people. Just be nicer. Yeah. Yeah. What I do I know? because <laughs> now he's 60 he's old man he can say what he's got that old man yeah i don't give a <laughs> shit what you think <laughs> i do however love his political commentary though because uh we see we have our we have similar political views and he um expresses himself uh with how he criticized our current regime way better than i could and i try to re- i've gone back and listened to what he had to say because it still makes me laugh, and uh, I appreciate his his point of view politically. I will leave it at that. But yes, very good. Point. Far, yeah, as far as what he did in professional wrestling, though, Jim Cornette's work speaks for itself. Um, manager, uh, promoter, Booker, visionary, like Paulie. It's like they're so similar. They have they're both the same zodiac sign. They both, you know, started the same way as photographers, then as managers. They both made their big deals in Memphis. Uh, they both started their own companies, ECW and in Joe Cornette's case, Smoky Mountain. They both discovered a lot of great talent. 
that went on to become Hall of Fame wrestlers, like Jim did in ECW, like uh, Jim Cornette did in Smoky Mountain. So they both have uh, indelible marks in professional wrestling. Uh, and that cannot be ignored and it can't be overlooked, uh, regardless of what people may still think of them. Um, and they may not, and again, we were talking about dicks and wrestling, and you know, a lot of people don't have a lot of may not have a lot of good things to say about those guys, but can't stop, uh, can't ignore what they did in professional wrestling. Uh, September 20th, um, this is um, a date in professional wrestling that I'm, I know I mentioned uh, September 13, 1988, right here in Philadelphia, which was a big deal. But September 20th, 1975, Dan, is the single most important date in professional wrestling history for me. Because it was on that date, September 20th, 1975, at the beautiful air-conditioned Philadelphia Spectrum that I went to my very first wrestling match. Oh, all right nine years old my father took me uh to see my first wrestling match after badgering him for most of that year to go see one because i had just discovered this incredible um athletic physical soap opera on my tv every saturday afternoon because cartoons were over but then i this came on and i was hooked and so i begged my dad to take me to wrestling because the big match that was going to happen. Uh, he was good friends with Charlie Abel, a longtime Spectrum security guard who was on the same fire department with my dad in Engine 73. So he was able to, uh, I was go, able to go back and look for a little bit. And even though I couldn't go, uh, Mr. Abel was able to get me some autographs from some of the wrestlers that were down there. And, uh, he had to just sign these blank pieces of paper. We didn't have three by five cards. And um, it was for the, uh, and I got most of them. But the matches that night were um, Waldo Von Eric versus Haystacks Calhoun. Waldo and uh, he was getting, um, yes, one of the, uh, he was Fritz's brother at the time. But Waldo Von Eric was, he had a huge run in the WWF at the time. And uh, he was getting the better of Haystacks Calhoun, who was over 600 pounds and literally couldn't move. But uh, he was getting the crap beaten out of him. And out of nowhere, Ivan Putsky walks to the aisle and just points to the ring. And was like, yes, help Haystacks get his ass kicked. And Ivan Putsky came running out of the ring and just windmilled Waldo Von Eric and the place went nuts. I went nuts. But the main event that night, Dan, was a Sicilian stretcher match. Racist. Where, where the winner? Wait, it's Sicilian. I don't care. It's a Sicilian stretcher match. A winner. Uh, well, the loser. Only way you can win the match was the loser had to be carted off on a stretcher, had to be physically incapacitated enough that he had to be carried out on a stretcher. And it was George the Animal Steel going against the WWF Heavyweight Champion Bruno Sammartino in a Sicilian stretcher match with special guest. Referee Andre the Giant. Jesus Christ! My okay. first wrestling match ever, ever. See, see now the tables turn because my first wrestling match ever was Havoc '89, <laughs> and to turn the tables, the referee for the well, he wasn't the main event, but for the the 
advertised big of big match in that on that show was Bruno. Bruno. <laughs> it was yeah. Bruno. So full circle. Yeah. So we're we're again we're linked, Dan. Not just by background, but by Bruno. But that was my end. So the some of the the it's amazing. Yeah. That's a, the, Andre as the referee is insane. So that was my not only was my first time seeing Bruno, it was my first time seeing Andre. Um uh, so I was absolutely um, amazing. I had never, I had only been to the Spectre for for Sixers games when they were when the place wasn't even half full, uh, and for the the Globetrotters and for the Ice Capades. So this was my first time seeing a wrestling match. So I can, I never saw that many people there before, and this is the first time I'm seeing. This is the first time I'm seeing wrestling in color, Dan. So oh, that's yeah, the other yeah. thing that blew, that blew my mind in 1975. Right. Um, Nothing but black and white TVs for me. So seeing it in color, hearing it, the mat when someone slammed on it, Eno's back in his old seventies rings, uh, the smell, uh, just the the look, and just you know everything. And I I mentioned this a lot when um, when we lost Bruno, the murmur of it because Bruno uh, was this mythological creature, folks. World champions didn't wrestle on TV be like they do now every single week uh bruno only wrestled on house shows to defend his belt he would come on tv holding his belt talking about his next challenger you know at the spectrum or mass square garden or boston garden for the local affiliates but unless you you paid a ticket to see him you didn't you never saw bruno wrestle because again he never on tv so this is my first time seeing this superhero this superman Named Bruno, and so he, when he came out of the tunnel, and the place was sold out because Bruno sold out everywhere. Um, no music, no techno, no darkness. No, it was just you know, George Steele was already in the ring, getting booze from the crowd. So of course, everyone turned to the opposite, and they would the the, the man the uh, wrestlers would come from opposite sides. So Steele came out for one entrance. So we know well, all the heels came out for one entrance. So we knew all the the baby faces were coming out from the other entrance. So as soon as Steele was in the ring, he was being booed unmercifully, and Andre was keeping him in check. Everyone's eyes turned north. Bruno's coming. Bruno's coming. <laughs> and you just looked, and you just heard just the way, and, you know, and people were, you saw people craning their necks down the tunnel to see if they could see him. And then heads would pop up. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And you could almost see physically the wave of people as Bruno came jogging to the ring just with the belt, trunks, boots. That's it. No robe, no towel, no anything. Just jogging to the ring. And with every step he took, it got louder and louder and louder till he got to the ring. And just standing on the ring apron, one hand in the air was enough to send 20,000 people into a frenzy. Because Bruno had acknowledged them. And here he was, this mythological creature, this unbeatable conqueror who had never lost anywhere, who was going up against these humongous odds every single month and beating everyone. So I got to see him, and I got to see him beat George Steele to death in a Sicilian stretcher match and seeing George Steele carted out face first on a stretcher. He Bruno had somehow survived the flying hammerlock. He survived 
the foreign object that he had tucked in his trunks that he even couldn't, Andre couldn't even get it from him. He, he hid it from Andre, but he survived all that and won the bout. And so that was my very first wrestling match ever, September 20th, 1975. So very significant day for me in wrestling history that I can share with you, the wrestling fans. <laughs> Which brings us to today in wrestling history. Um, I just want to acknowledge this guy because he's also someone who uh, has got a significant part in professional wrestling. And uh, we've mentioned the birthdays of um, guys that are some get considered dicks, but they were also very influential men in professional wrestling. Uh, it's a happy belated birthday to Paul Heyman. Happy belated 60th birthday to Jim Cornette. But today, happy 77th birthday to Ole Anderson. Oh. <laughs> the quintessential yeah. grump, <laughs> grumpy old man. <laughs> a miserable prick. If I ever, yeah. Never heard a story where he wasn't miserable prick. <laughs> Jim Cornette tells the best of them, though. <laughs> and uh, I think it was one after a great American bash. Um, I think when the Midnights and uh, and Jim Cornette went against the Road Warriors and Baby Doll in the main event, and he drew something like a hundred fifty thousand dollar house, a thousand dollar house, and Ole said, you know, grumble to that man. I can't believe I laid all this groundwork to you know all the stuff I did in wrestling, and then some fat manager and some wacky c word. Get to make all the money, get to get the main event. And then Jim fired back, well, Oli, on behalf of all the fat managers and dopey C words, I want to thank you for laying the groundwork so we can't get all this money. And <laughs> that that popped the lady because Oli said that in front of everyone, and Jim Cornette <laughs> said it right back, and that popped the locker room. And that was uh that was when Ole kind of got respect for Jim because he, he he fired right back. But uh, <laughs> I, just, uh, I would love to fit in the room. <laughs> oh shit! Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, but uh, Ole, um, like. Jim Cornette, and I must be a, a sign. It must be the zodiac sign, whatever it is, for that we this week in September. But uh, those three guys uh, were incredible visionaries, uh, great bookers. Oli was one of the guys that uh, was kind of like a, in an early lad territory. Not only was he uh, a main event talent in one territory, he would also book the other. So he was a he was a main event talent in the Mid Atlantic area when he and his brother Gene were the NWA Tag Team Champions. But he was booking Georgia at the same time, and vice versa. He would be the he could be the main event in Georgia with uh with Ivan Koloff or by himself, or with Stan Hansen, and he'd be booking the Mid Atlantic Territory. So Ole, uh, in the seventies, uh, mid seventies or early eighties, was making about two hundred fifty grand in money, that which would be about two million dollars now, a year. He was making by being yeah, so. The, what uh, are you event. bitching about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess, and the way that the uh, his ideas were uh, very good, and and he was always good at seeing talent and and pushing talent. You know, namely, you know, guys we mentioned before, Ric Flair, um, uh, Greg Valentine, uh, 
and uh, Snuka and Piper in the Mid Atlantic area. He was and in Georgia, obviously Tommy Rich, Stan Hansen, Tony Atlas. Uh, he's instrumental in making those guys uh, great main event superstars. But it was always behind the scenes where Ole would run into trouble because uh, Ole obviously didn't get along with a lot of people, even the people he was no. working with, even the, the people that made him a lot of money, people he made a lot of money. Because if it weren't for the uh, problems that Jim Barnett and the Briscoes had with Ole, they never would have uh, sold the uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling stake to Vince McMahon in the first place. Black Saturday would not exist uh, because because of that they uh, Jim the the Brit Ole Anderson the Briscoes and Jim Barnett uh, controlled interest in the Georgia Championship Wrestling, but when Vince went them went went to them for an offer uh, because uh, the Briscoes and Barnett held more shares than Ole did and they sold those to uh, Vince making him the majority and Ole was out. And uh, something similar happened in the uh, when he was booking WCW in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, when it was up to uh, her to bring the uh, the Horsemen back. Tully and Arn give her contracts with WWF were up, and the idea was to reunite the Horsemen. But Jim Hurd, being Jim Hurd, didn't hire Tully, so he had to ask Ole to come back, and <laughs> and Ole did. And uh, and got the book, and then the Black Scorpion happened, and <laughs> so Ole has been known to have some great ideas, but just not a whole lot of follow through because as uh, Black Scorpion may have been a great initial idea, but as far as how to end it or where are we going with this, didn't really. And we find out later that it was because Ole just didn't give a crap anymore. He does yeah. have one of my favorite moments when they kick Sting out of the Horseman. Yeah. And it's Flair. Like, Flair, <laughs> it's a great moment where Ole's the mouthpiece and the tough guy mm-hmm. delivering the message while Flair sits there cocky. Yeah. Sitting back, and, and he's the one that slaps the shit out of Sting and pushes him against the rope. But it's that moment where they grab him and hold him, and Ole's like, when you, <laughs> or before that, you know, when he's in the space, like, you, when you signed that contract for that match, you just signed your death, death warrant. warrant. Yeah. Great. Uh, yeah. And oh, that's the other thing, Ole, like his, the guys I talked about beforehand, great on the mic. Always gave a great promo, even when he was at the top heel in Georgia, Mid-Atlantic, everywhere. And, you know, when he, that particular promo with Sting, you know, he was doing all the talking. You think we first, we wanted you to be a horseman, you know, and you brought to take care of this guy, pointing to Terry Funk. But now, you're no longer a horseman. I want you out, and Ric Flair goes, Sting, I want you to give a lot of time. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not like that. You're not a horseman. You're not, you're not one of us. Get out of this business. Yeah, and then just like that, Flair was at first went for quiet and reserved, then almost like trying to match Ole Dan. Ole's uh, energy. He got, when Sting went there, now wait a minute, and he got hit. And you see Ole and Arn trying to hold Sting's arms back, and you see them selling how strong Sting was. And Flair. He's, you say that, twice. but I'm pretty yeah. sure he slapped oh, yeah. the shit out of him. Oh, he did. And he did I it mean, twice. This, yeah, yeah, did it twice. It was the yeah. two times he just hit him as yeah, hard as he could. Listen. Get out of this business. Oh. Get out of my lives. 
Oh, I just remember rewatching it because you, you go back and rewatch the stuff on the network or whatever it's called now. And you're wondering if, if the impact will be there and, and it'll sh- mean the same. And then you get to that. You just see them. You just fucking yeah. hear them. Oh, that one. And then, and then when, when Junkyard Dog smacked Flair. Yeah. <laughs> Junkyard Dog smacked the holy hell out of him. Because Flair kind of smacked him and the Junkyard just went. Just You yeah. just heard this bop. <laughs> And for the briefest of times, the uh, Ric Flair Junkyard Dog series of matches did some sellout crowds again for the briefest of times before it, you know, that wore off. But um, uh, Ole Anderson, uh, main event heel, great promo, uh, great booker, visionary guy. Uh, and because of his shortcomings uh, backstage, uh, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And because of that, things in the NWA and WCW took a wrong turn. But still, happy 77th birthday to Ole Anderson. Again, I, we talked about a lot of his contemporaries are no longer with us, but grumpy old man still is. So, Still grumpy, birth- too. Still grumpy on this day. To happy today. Happy birthday to Ole Anderson. And that, gentlemen and ladies, has been the Wrestling Historian. And if you want to follow me for more wrestling insight and historical uh, attributes, uh, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Craig Lagan, C-R-A-I-G-L-I-G-G-E-O-N-S. Follow me on all social media platforms at DanLaw83. Everywhere. Everywhere. To watch the live show, go to DanLaw.tv. If you're watching the live show and you missed it and you want to see the highlights, go to youtube.com slash DanLaw83. DanLaw.tv is the main, the main hub. That's where you want to be for all the live shows. Uh, on your smartphone, go to any podcast app you have and type in the HIC Talk Radio Network to find all of our episodes there. Look for the big, beautiful green and blue logo. Hit subscribe, hit follow. Leave us a review. We got a review. The we got a new review the other day. I was like, "Hey, hey, look at that!" Cool. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, thank you, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>